Got, a, got an interesting email here. It says an old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, his wife said. What are praise choruses? And he said, well, I'll tell you, it's like this. If I were to say, Martha, the cow in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, the cows, the cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, the corn, the corn. And if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, that would be a praise chorus. <laughs> a, a young new Christian went to his local church usually, but one weekend he was away on business, and he attended a church in a small town. And he came and asked his wife how it was. And he came home and his wife asked him how it was. And he said, well, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of praise choruses. And his wife said, hymns? What are those? And he said, oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I was to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Incline us thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or His reign, unless from the mild, tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight have broke free their shackles, their warm pens eschewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild chillwax sweet corn have chewed. <laughs> so look to that bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn and where no vicious animal makes my soul cry and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. <laughs> in recent years, in my ministry lifetime, we have undergone a lot of transformations in what's called worship. And in some places, they have what they call worship wars, which is where people argue about what should be done in a worship service. But in most of those arguments, people don't usually seem to open up the Scripture and say, what does God say about worship? And in Malachi chapter 1, as we are working our way through that book, God is going to severely reprimand the people of Israel for their worship. And we want to see what he tells them that might instruct us about what real worship is. 
Because I fear those who define worship as singing praise choruses and those who define worship as singing hymns may be both missing the mark, according to what God says. And I want to read the whole chapter of, of Malachi 1 because it's been quite a while since we started this study. We started it in January before I was gone for four weeks. And, uh, and so I want to get the flow of this back in your mind. The verses we're going to consider today are verses 9 through 14. But Malachi 1.1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, said the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my honor? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut doors so you can't fight on my altar again? I have you, Lord, I for from the rising of the sun into its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and I shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stone, the lame, and the sick, Thus you bring an offering. Did I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices it to the Lord, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. What God says to them in the first five verses of the chapter is this. He, he starts by declaring his love. He says, I have loved you. And they turn around and say, What? And so God leads them through a little reminder where he says, look, when I chose Jacob, and Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs or the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So all these people were descended from Jacob. God says, when I chose Jacob, Jacob had a twin brother. And in fact, his twin brother Esau was older than him. And so normally the right of inheritance and the right of being recognized as something special would have gone to the older brother. He says, but I chose Jacob. Did you forget that, folks? That's what he's saying to them. He's saying the very fact that you are my people, the very fact that you're called Israel, the very fact that you are God's chosen people is because I chose Jacob over the one who would normally be chosen. 
He said, you are privileged to be called my children. And that's the lesson that we took from it, that we are privileged to be God's children. We don't deserve this. We have not earned this. We are saved by grace, that is a free gift, through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest man should boast. God has graciously chosen us. That's why we're his children, not because we're something special. They forgot that. And then the second lesson we learned from verses 6 through 8 is that they should have been honoring God, but they weren't. They should have been honoring him because he was their father and their master. God tells us in John 1.14, to as many, or excuse me, 1.18, to as many as believed in him, believed in Jesus, God gave the power to become his sons or his children. We are God's children. He is our Father. We owe Him respect as our Father, certainly as the one who gave us salvation. And we also owe Him respect as our Master because He is the Creator and Sustainer of all things. If we were to lay out the logic that God uses in this chapter, it would go something like this. Because the people of Israel didn't perceive His love, it was there, but they didn't perceive it, because of that, they didn't honor Him. And because they didn't honor him, they offered sinful sacrifices. And now today in verses 9 through 14, what we are going to learn that's extended out from that line of thought is this. Because the worship they offered was sinful, God rejected their worship. Perhaps the chief thought today is this, to understand that there is worship which God receives and worship which God does not receive. And we start in verse 9 understanding that true worship is the only worship that God accepts. Look at verse 9. He, he tells them right in the middle of this, he gives them a little bit of an exhortation, which is now entreat God's favor or pray for God's favor so that he may be gracious. Over and over, when the people of Israel got away from God and got into trouble, God said, look, pray to me and ask for help. But right after that, he says, Now, while this is being done, while these sinful sacrifices are being offered by your hands, will God accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. Those seem like awfully harsh words to me. If God was saying those words to me, I would be scared. True worship is the only worship God accepts. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Back toward the middle of your Bible, a few pages. To Isaiah chapter 1. Where God speaks to his people. Oh. No wonder that doesn't look right. I'm not in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1 and verse 9. Now this is God talking to his own people. Get that in your mind right up front because he's going to call them something. But he's not talking to these other people. He's using that name to refer to Israel. Verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. That means a few people who are true believers. Unless he had done that, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. He says, we were in danger of God just stamping us out completely because of our sin, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But now look what he says, 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. God calls his people Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample on my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. Uh, to put it in our language today, God was ticked off. Now, what you have to realize here is you have to go back to the Old Testament time frame and say, now, wait a minute. Didn't God tell them to offer sacrifices? Yes, he did. Bulls and, and, and oxen and so on, like he says here. Didn't God tell them every morning and every night to offer a sacrifice? Didn't he tell them to have special festivals and special week-long times when they worshipped him and offer sacrifices? Yes. Didn't he tell them when they sinned they should bring a sacrifice? Yes, he did. And so why does he say, I am fed up with your sacrifices? Because the people were doing so out of a ritual obligation, not with the heart. David says in the Psalms, the sacrifices of God are a... No, they are a broken heart, a contrite heart, a broken spirit. It's our heart relationship to God that matters. Turn back with me to Malachi. These people... These people were showed that their heart dishonored God. In fact, that's what he says in verses 6 and 7. If we were to go back there, he says, verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, look, you are offering the blind and the lame as sacrifices, which tells me you don't really honor me. Now, again, we need to refer to the Old Testament law, which specifically prohibited offering anything less than a perfect animal. Now, I know, humanly speaking, no animal is 100% perfect. But you can certainly look at it and see, is the leg broken? Later, he's going to make reference to an animal that's been torn by a wild beast. Uh, Roadkill. Now, there's only one reason you offer the lame and the, and the roadkill and the blind. There's only one reason you do that and you don't offer your best animal. And that's right here. Because you love your pocketbook better than God. And that's what he indicts them for. He doesn't say you have stopped making sacrifice. He says you are, you are breaking the law of sacrifice. You're coming with an animal, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a inappropriate sacrifice according to my law. And that shows me that your heart is not with me. That last song that we sang in a worship segment probably comes the closest of a new song to hitting the nail right on the head. You do not require a song when we, when we interchange worship with music, we are doing a great disservice to both of those. Worship may be done through music. 
Or it may be done some other way. But if all we're doing is singing a bunch of songs and saying that's the worship time, we might be just like these people of God in the Old Testament who came and said, well, I offered my sacrifice. There you go. We, we worship. There it is. And God says, I'm fed up with that. I've had enough of that. And one of the great messages that we have to get through our mind today is God says, will he take that offering? Look at verse 9 of Malachi 1. Will he accept you favorably? Can you just come into church and offer God any old thing and he's bound by duty to take it? Well, better than nothing. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Can you, can you sit down in your chair in the morning and pop your Bible open and read a few verses while you're thinking about your things to do list and say, well, hope you're happy, God. According to this, he's not going to be happy. Will he accept you favorably? And then look at verse 10. This is so harsh. Who is there even among you who would just shut the door so that you wouldn't kindle fire in vain? In Jeremiah 6.20, he says this to the people of Israel, Your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me. Your sacrifices are not sweet to me. God describes the, the Old Testament sacrifices, and he also describes our service to him as a sweet savor, a sweet smell. Uh, you know, when you come home in November, and your mom or your wife or your dad is making a pumpkin pie and the whole house smells kind of cinnamony and you go, yeah. That's what God does when you worship. He goes, boy, that smells good. And he's blessed by it. But when you come with an empty heart or a rejecting heart or a ritual-oriented, oh, I'm just going to go through the motions, whatever, it's a stench. In Africa, they don't have a whole lot of what we call bathrooms. And they, there ends up being places where they go to the bathroom where everybody seems to go and go to the bathroom. And it ain't a sweet savor. Do you know, God describes humanly derived righteousness as opposed to true godly righteousness as a filthy rag. And you know what that word really could be translated? Dirty diaper. God says, look, it's either a sweet savor or a stench. Listen to what he wrote to the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. He said, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm uh, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What does God mean between being hot and cold? I think what he means is, if you were unbelievers, I would understand how you're living in sin. I would not like it, but I would be working on you to come to Christ. If you are a believer living for me, you're hot for the Lord. He says, that's great. But if you're a believer who's just kind of living this mediocre, sinful life and coming to church and maybe opening your Bible once in a while, but your heart's not with God, he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, he's not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but he's saying this is unacceptable to me. We are not going to have close fellowship if your worship is not genuine. Have you heard the term settle? 
used toward people getting married? As in, your standards are a little high. You might just have to settle for a little bit less. And sometimes we think that's good wisdom. People's standards are too high. Do you think God is going to settle for something less than true heart worship to him? Do you think, he, do you think God grades on a curve? <laughs> well, you're, you're about half spiritual, okay. Now, that's different. Here's something you've got to get your, your, your head around, too. After 20 years of really growing in the Lord, might you worship God a little more, a little better than you did when you're a brand new Christian? I think that's possible. But as a brand new Christian, are you worshiping God the best you know how with sincerity? God says, is your heart with me? Because if it's not, I'm not going to accept your worship. God says, God says something in verse 10 that is so harsh. I have no pleasure in you, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. You ever use the phrase, my prayers aren't making it past the ceiling? I've heard people say that. It may be because your heart hasn't made it past the ceiling yet. You're holding on to it for yourself. God only accepts true worship. Now, what is true worship? True worship is God-focused. Look at verse 11 of Malachi 1. For God says, listen, here's the reason I won't accept your half-hearted worship. For... From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God, true worship is God-focused. God-focused. God-focused worship, number one, is singular. He says, my name will be praised among the Gentiles. This goes without saying, but sometimes we forget the first commandment out of those ten is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so when we consider worship, we have to stop and say, am I singular or single-hearted in my worship? I spoke with somebody yesterday from, from far away who's uh, having some struggles in their life and we talked about some things and, and all of a sudden they went, well, if that's the case, then I've got a whole bunch of idols in my heart. Different things in their life that, that, that are so important that they, their life was topsy-turvy because they're hanging on to the wrong God. When you come in here to worship, when you sit down with God or when you're driving down the road and you're talking to God, you need to stop and say, am I worshiping God singularly, purely, Him alone? Or, or is He sharing my heart with some other, some other goals, some other ambitions, some things I must have? Am I worshiping Him alone? In Isaiah 42, 8, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, He says, do all to the glory of God. John Calvin uh, famous Christian from years ago, if you don't know his name, said this, the human heart is an idle factory. We're constantly finding things to, to pursue, to hang on to, things we must have. God says, look, worship me alone. 
True worship must be singular. If anything is more important to you than living your whole life in a way that honors God, then you're not a true worshiper. And no matter how many verses of the hymn or the praise chorus you sing, God's up in heaven going, P-U. He's saying, get your heart right with me. Secondly, God-focused worship is spiritual. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is that famous passage where Jesus is witnessing to the woman at the well, and, and along the way he teaches us something very important about worship. In fact, this is where the title of my, my sermon comes from. Titled my sermon, Seeker-Sensitive Worship. If you are aware of the church world at all today, you know that a lot of churches design what they do on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights to reach unbelievers, and they call that seeker-sensitive worship. In John chapter 4, verse 20, this interchange goes on. This is the woman at the well talking, first of all. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is. In other words, it's, it's dawning right now, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God wants you to worship Him. He is seeking worship. He's the seeker we should be concerned about in our worship. Verse 24, God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is, what He's really telling her is something quite revolutionary. He says, look, you folks worship here, the Jews worship in Jerusalem. He says, a day is coming when neither one of those matter. He is clearly telling to her the ritual worship is passing away and the true heart, personal, spiritual worship is coming. Which tells me, number one, <clears throat> that this building is not the church. This is not the altar. You are the church. And the altar is in heaven. And wherever you are, you can praise God. This is just a place where the church gathers. We should call it the church building or the church facility because you are the church. True worship is offered from the heart to God. Jesus very clearly rejected worship as something which must be done in a particular ritual. I read an interesting story about a, a pastor who was, he, I think he pastored a, a Presbyterian church, and that particular one at least was a little more formal than what we're used to, and they would have the Lord's Supper every week, and he was new in this church. And after the first Sunday, there was a little bit of an uproar, because he didn't do things the way the old pastor did. And... Uh, when he asked about, they said, they said, you don't do what he used to do. And so he asked the old pastor, what did he used to do? Well, he always, right before he picked up the communion cup, which was a big silver cup, 
he would walk over and touch the radiator, the heat radiator, the metal heat radiator, and then he would come back and go on with communion. And somehow his people had developed a spiritual ritual about this, and when the new pastor didn't do it, he was bad. And the old pastor says to him, Oh, that, that's just when I discharge the static electricity before I touch the cup. And they're ready to send the pastor packing. Oh, sure, you can laugh about that. But what ritual is there that you can't laugh about? Jesus said, look, it isn't about a building. It's not about a town. It's about you personally worshiping God. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't have to be in a church building. It doesn't have to be in a suit, doesn't have to be in a hymn book or in a chorus. It's not about ritual, it's about spiritual. Because of the new birth, we can worship God spirit to spirit. He is a spirit. He says he's not a human being that you're going to carry something to. He's a spirit and we worship him spirit to spirit. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 he says having boldness to enter the holy of holies let us draw near with boldness there is no physical requirement for worship it can be done under a graph inside a climate controlled building in america it can be done sitting or standing or lying in bed you can give god glory from a hospital bed just as well as a church pew true worship is a spiritual endeavor, not a physical one. One of, the, one of the most important things we have to be careful for is that we don't develop a new legalism. What I mean by that is, you know, over time, it, it, Lord willing, I'm going to be here for a lot of years and we're going to develop certain habits. Maybe I'm going to touch the radiator. Who knows? And you need to say, God, deliver us from seeing worship in these physical terms. And let us see you. Let us worship you. Let us talk to you heart to heart, spirit to spirit. True worship is a spiritual endeavor, not a physical one. Thirdly, God-focused worship is intellectual. Now, what do I mean by that? Did you see what Jesus said about worship? They must worship him in spirit and truth. Worship is not just an experience devoid of knowledge. There has been a great justice and a great injustice done in contemporary worship. The great justice is this. For those of us who have called ourselves biblical fundamentalists, we have been pulled to say, look, you have a relationship with God. Are you expressing that relationship to God when you come together and when you're alone? God says he's in a love relationship to us. Are we just cold and formal and intellectual about everything Christian? Or is there a relationship quality? That's the good side of what the modern worship movement has done for us. The bad side is many people define worship as a warm, fuzzy feeling they get when they gather with others and sing Kumbaya and hold hands. And if they don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling, they're going out saying, church was lousy today. 
Or when they do get the warm, fuzzy feeling, they say, my, wasn't the spirit moving? I worship, I, I witnessed something that I don't think was particularly spiritual. It wasn't ungodly as in sinful, but it was a worship service to me that didn't look very worshipful when I was in Africa, not with our missionaries. And people went away from that saying, wow, wasn't God at work today? And I kind of felt like saying, well, he was at work somewhere, but I don't think it was here. Now that, you know, there's some somewhat subjective in that. I understand that. But just because we generate a feeling doesn't mean we have connected with the Spirit of God. And just because we don't generate a feeling doesn't mean we have failed to connect with God. Worship is a spiritual matter, first of all, and then an intellectual matter in the spirit and in truth. Remember in Malachi, God said, my name is to be worshipped. Turn with me to Joshua 2. My name. Hmm. Joshua chapter 2, right after Deuteronomy. <clears throat> In Joshua 2, Joshua has sent a couple of spies up in to check out Jericho. And it, starting in verse 8, these spies were going to be captured. And a lady named Rahab, who was a prostitute, took them in and hid them and protected them and then sent them out by a secret way. And here's why she did that. Joshua 2.8. Now before they lay down, that is where they hid, they laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, and in your Bible that should be all caps, as in Jehovah, I know that Jehovah has given you the land and that the terror of you all has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other sides of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. <clears throat> and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Folks, that's Rahab worshiping. She said, your God, He is God, in heaven and on the earth. That is a declaration of worship. This morning when you said, God helped me with this, God did this, that is a declaration of worship. It is you using your mind and what you know about God from His Word and what you have seen God do in your life and expressing in an intelligent fashion the truth about God. There can be no worship without intelligent truth expressed because worship must be in spirit and in truth, not spirit or truth. See, I think what happened many years ago was the charismatic folks worshipped in spirit and the fundamentalists worshipped in truth. 
And by God's grace, if you don't know it, the charismatics are getting to be a lot more about truth than they used to be. And the fundamentalists are getting a lot more connected with the Spirit of God. The Spirit and truth together. Not one or the other, but both. Jesus said, worship is not about rituals or buildings. It's about content, and the content is Him. John MacArthur put it this way, worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that God is. The best worship music, whether it's displayed here or written in a hymn book, whether it's 100 or 200 or 500 years old or two days old, the best worship music is going to express truth about God and truth about us in relationship to God. We love Him because He first loved us. That's us and God together. All of those things come together. When I am alone with God, I don't have to sing to worship Him but I have to express truth about him and me together and say, God, thank you for who you are. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I have a pastor friend who can't carry a tune. I found that out when I was leading singing on his platform many years ago, he was standing back here, and every once in a while, I thought he was singing harmony. And then I found out he was just lucky. (laughs) But you know what? He sings with grace in his heart to the Lord. You know what? If you can't sing, I don't care. Now, if you're going to be on the worship team, then I care. (laughs) Because it needs to be the Word of Christ dwelling in you and then speaking out from you. If it's anything else, it's not worship. I am so blessed by our musicians who, as far as I know, are living for the Lord and are not concerned about displaying their talent, which is great. I mean, it's great that they don't want to, and it's great that they have great talent. They don't care about that. I don't want those kind of musicians up here because they aren't worshiping in spirit and truth. They're displaying their talent. But the same thing can be true with you wherever you are. It's not about how much you know of the book. Well, I'm really smart, you know. No, it's about you knowing God and giving worship to Him through that knowledge of Him. The Word of Christ should dwell richly, and then it should just come out of you. Robert Gromacki puts it this way, Worship must be a genuine response of a grateful heart, according to the truth of the Word of God. We should not sing or pray thinking that those activities are worship, Rather, we should sing and pray because we are worshiping. Those should just be methods or modes in which we express a worshiping heart. Throughout the book of Revelation, we, we, we find us actually pictured as the, as the elders, and we find the angels falling down at the feet of Christ. And they don't just fall down and lay there. They say, you are worthy to receive honor because you saved us. 
It's the spirit and truth together. If you really want to worship God, to honor God, the key is getting to know him through his word. When you read the word of God, is it just for you to learn how you should act? Or do you read it saying, what does this tell me about God? When I read the book of Malachi, and I hear how he talked to these people who were who were, uh, they were ritually worshiping God, but not genuinely. When I see how he talks to them, I, I come away going, you know, God is not somebody to be messed with. I learn about God, and I learn that I should take him seriously. And I learn later as we come along that he wants to, not only does he want to condemn false worship, he wants to bless real worship. God blesses true worship. Look back with me now to Malachi at the other half of this message from God, that he blesses true worship. I, I confess to you that I would rather preach some positive truth than some negative, and this book is really negative. And I hope you can understand today that I'm trying to share with you God's, God's uh, condemnation of these people, but also share the positive truth that could have been true for them. And so first of all here, as we think about God blessing true worship, let's look at their negative example, the sad reality of the people of Israel. Verse 12, he says in verse 11, My name is to be great, but verse 12, but you profane it. Now think about this. What he said in verse 11 is also somewhat of a prophecy. He said, look, what's supposed to be true is everywhere in the whole world people are supposed to worship me. If you come to Philippians chapter 2, you find out about that, don't you? He says, For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that's going to happen in eternity future. So there's going to come a day, perhaps at the great white throne judgment, where all of the unbelievers are going to realize they were wrong and they're going to bow and say, You are God. They're not going to get saved by that. But they're going to come to a knowledge of the truth, and they're going to acknowledge that God is God. And, and of course, we will have already been doing that. We're doing it now. We'll be doing it in eternity. So he says, look, this is what's supposed to be happening. But in verse 12, let me paraphrase it. You, my chosen people who go by my name, you're profaning my name. You of all people. He says, what's supposed to be happening is, is all of the Gentiles everywhere who don't even go by my name, they're all going to be praising me someday. But you, my own chosen people who I have invested so much in, you profane it. In that you say, and here's how they profaned it, the table of the Lord is defiled. Its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hands? In other words, they were tired of worship. Do I have to go to church again? Do I have to take another animal down there and kill it? Can't we just like do this like once a year? You know. They said it's a weariness. They were weary of worship. Now, why were they weary of worship? I would submit to you it was because they did not understand his love. My daughter, who lives in Switzerland, talks on the phone for hours at a time to a boy who's probably very poor. 
you should all pray for him because you know if they if this goes on and they get married he's boy he, he he's gonna have to make a lot of money that's all i can say you know <laughs> high maintenance yeah um you think it's a burden to him that they're talking for hours at a time on the phone? No burden. No burden, why? Because there's love or like or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> and you all know because most of you have been there at least once. No burden. Folks, if worshiping God is a burden to you, if opening your Bible to read it is a burden to you, if praying to God is a burden to you. Maybe you don't have enough of a picture of God's love for you. Not your love for Him. The only way you're going to love God is if you comprehend, He loved me first. You need to get into the book and find out how much God loves you. But these folks weren't doing that. Because they didn't see His love, they didn't honor Him. And because they didn't honor Him, they offered sinful worship. Instead of viewing their ministry as a high and holy privilege, the priests saw it as boring and burdensome. They were weary of worship. Number two, they purposefully, they purposefully gave sinful worship. Now God, specifically for them, God spelled out how their sacrifices were to be. But look what they did. Verse 13 what a weariness. You sneer at it. You bring the stolen. That's that word for, for roadkill, actually. The lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this? One of the things that would, that would, that would make preaching easier is if I could tell you exactly what you have to give to God. But I can't. But I can tell you this, 1 Corinthians 16, in talking about money, and that's not the only subject here, but I think by application it applies to everything we do with God. It says, let him consider how God has blessed him, and then let him lay in store a gift that he's going to give. You need to talk to God about your worship life. God needs to tell you what you should be doing, not me. I can tell you the categories you know, you should be serving the Lord, you should be giving, you should be praying, you should be reading, you should be praising the Lord. I can tell you the categories, but only God can say what you need to be doing. These people had specific instruction from God, and they broke it. They, they knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing, and they didn't do it. And if that is the case with you in any realm, if you know you should be, for instance, putting something in the offering of a sacrificial nature and you purposefully refuse to do it, then you are in the same category as these folks. If you know you should be reading or praying or praising or whatever, if you know what you should be doing and you purposefully are saying, no, you're just like them. You bring the lame and the sick. They purposefully gave sinful worship. You ever heard the word re-gifting? Re-gifting is when you get a gift from somebody and you really don't like it. So you just stick it in the corner and then when something else comes up, you re-wrap it and you re-gift it on. You ever thought about re-gifting for God? You know, you get something you really don't care about so you're going to pass it on to God. 
You have some little bit of money you don't care about, I'll give it to God, whatever. These people had that kind of an attitude toward God. They gave God the leftover, the useless, the scraps of their life. David said, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. Look at the awful thing that they received then. They received a curse from God for their worship. <laughs> Verse 14, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and he takes a vow. Now, this is a special kind of worship. That's when a person says, I'm going to give God this. I'm going to say, God, please do something. And then I'm going to give you this gift. And he says, a person who does that, and then they sacrifice that which is blemished. He says, that person is going to be cursed. Somebody shared an example of giving with me a while ago, a number of months ago. And they said, you know, we, we, we got our paycheck, and we wrote, you know, they were giving 10%, so they wrote this 10% check. It was a small paycheck due to some hard circumstances. And they were really tight financially, but they wrote the check to the church for this amount of money. And, you know, it was a small amount, you know, like, like $30. Boom. So right there, they made a vow. Right there, they said, God, this is your money. But then they said, you know, I'm not sure if I can afford to give that. So they stuck it in their wallet, and they didn't give it. And between then and the time they actually put it in the plate, three things happened that cost them exactly $30 every time. And they went, okay, God, I get it. <laughs> now, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? They didn't have to, to give all their money to the Lord from the sale of their property, but they said, we're giving it all. They made a vow. And then they didn't do it. And God says, look, if you do that, you're going to be cursed. You know, I don't put a lot of stock in curses and stuff like that. But when God says, I am going to oppose you if you are a deceiver, that's a terrible, that's a, that's a place I don't want to be. Would you turn with me just briefly to 2 Corinthians 9? This is our last scripture passage. I must end with the wonderful opportunity for us. Now, this passage is talking about giving money. That is not the primary purpose of my sermon today. But that certainly is part of our worship. But I think there's a principle here that God reiterates in other parts of the scripture too. But 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. This principle is borne out throughout the scripture in anything you do for God. In anything you do for God. Now, I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to preach some seed faith where, okay, everybody come down and put a hundred bucks in, you'll get a thousand back next week. No, 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 that's baloney. But it is not baloney that God says, look, if you give to me, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to bless you. That is not a foolish promise. Look at verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly, not of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, he's just said, look, here's the principle. You give much, you will receive much. You give little, you'll receive little. So you sit and decide. Do you want God to bless you richly, or do you want God to bless you poorly? Verse 8, 
And here's the great promise. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving to God. Folks, God makes this promise and it's very similar to the promise of Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and how many things will be added to you? All the things, I believe, according to that chapter, all the things you need. The principle in regard to money specifically is something like this. When you come to that offering time and you say, wow, there's 30 bucks, I'm not sure I can afford to give it. God says, give it. Because I'll make sure. What he actually says is, I'll make sure you can give again. That's what he promises. In other words, you're not going to give it and then, well, you're going to be broke and that's going to be the end. It's going to be terrible. God says, look, I'm going to take care of you. When it comes to your time in the Word of God, you say, oh God, my schedule is so tight, i got so much to do, or I need to sleep, or whatever it is. God says, look, if you'll get up and honor me, genuinely, from your heart, open that Word and read it, I'll take care of your schedule. You don't have time to pray? You know, I, you know what I thought about prayer this week? It, I'm a slow learner. I was reading, I'm going through 2 Corinthians in my own devotion time, and and I read there about Paul asking for their prayers. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, maybe the reason our missionaries are so effective at reaching people for the Lord and starting churches is because they have so many people praying. And I wonder how many people in this church are praying for people to get saved. I thought, how could I miss that? Oh, I don't have time to pray. I don't, Dave, I don't have time to take that list of church people and pray for everyone every week. Why don't you? I bet if you commit to doing that, God will give you time somehow. I know of a lady who, who refused to submit to her husband's leadership in regard to buying a refrigerator. Many years ago, an old friend of our family, and she wanted this refrigerator, and her husband said, I don't think we should buy it. And she had the money, so she went and bought it. And the thing was a lemon from day one. And finally she said, take it away. If you can't trust God enough to obey his instruction, God is going to bring a curse. 1 Peter 5 puts it very simply this way. God opposes the proud, but he helps the humble. He exalts the humble. What a great thing. My daughter Stephanie lives in Los Angeles and she rides the bus. She doesn't have a car. Most of the time she rides the bus, but she has a lot of friends at church, and they love her. And she loves them, a great young adult group she's part of. And anytime they can, they will pick her up or drop her off, even if it's out of their way. You know, typically we think, oh, you know, I mean, out of the way, we're talking like going from here to Everson, you know, to drop somebody off. And, oh, yeah, hey, no problem, I'll take you over there. And why is it no problem? Again, because they love her, and she loves them. It's a love relationship. Friend, how's your love life with God? 
That's what he's been talking to the Israelites about. He's saying, look, folks, you don't really love me. I would encourage you this week to develop your love life with God by reading the Psalms. Observe David's love life. Observe how he expressed it. Ask God to build a, an awareness of his love for you. Memorize 1 John 4.19, which says, We love him because he first loved us, and the rest of that verse. And then 2 Samuel 24.24, which, in which David said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And then examine your worship life. Say, God, help me to deepen my worship for you. Help me to be genuine and sincere before you. Heavenly Father, thank you for sacrificing for us, for giving to us, for, for building into our lives. And you've asked us to sacrifice in return. You've asked us to worship. You've asked us to honor you. Father, grow that up. May this church be a great worshiping church. Not, not a great singing church, not a great anything else, but a great worshiping church. May we be great worshiping individuals because we love you much. We pray in Christ's name, amen.